Sunday morning. You can open up your Bibles to John chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 27. As usual, I try to see that we have songs that fit and match with the ideas and the truths that are in the scripture of what we're looking at each week. And but I'm just amazed and stunned and looking at the verses and thinking about them as we were singing them of Jesus being the resurrection and the life and just the richness of everything in that song in Christ alone that we just finished singing and the different verses and what always, well, most always what strikes me from those verses are the last couple of lines of each verse. You know, verse one, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. And then the verse two, every sin on him was laid and here in the death of Christ, I live. That juxtaposition of we live by his death. And then verse three, because he is risen from the grave and because he is the resurrection and the life, I am his and he is mine, bought with his precious blood. That the God of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, would make us his. What amazing love. And then the last verse, just this resoluteness of those last two lines in the fourth verse, till he returns or calls me home, meaning until he comes back for the second coming, or he calls me home in the physical death, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. And here in the power of Christ, we all stand because he is our Savior. That's all bonus material. It wasn't even part of the sermon. So uh, now on to John chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. Now, when Jesus came, he came to Bethany, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Lord, we ask that as we, your church, your body of believers, your people whom you have loved and made us you and possessed us as your own. Lord, we ask 
that you would reveal to us the very things you want us to see from these words, the things that draw us into you, the things that make you more beautiful to us than you were before, the richness of your majesty and your glory, and the depth of your great love for us. And we ask it, Lord, because you desire to give good things to your children. And we believe that you have called us together in this time, in this place, in this very moment for that purpose and entrusting ourselves to you for your showing us what you want us to see. And Lord, I pray as I often do, let nothing come out of my mouth except what you would have spoken to your people for your glory and for your purposes. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So here we are, just outside this little village of called Bethany, and Jesus is standing there, and John records for us this moment, and he starts out this portion of the narrative with this very strange kind of geography lesson and you know, funeral home lesson. That when Jesus gets there, he finds out that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Well, we already know that Jesus was at least two days from Bethany when they went to go find him or when Mary and Martha sent a messenger to go find him. And then he waited a couple extra days and so we, as we discussed previously, there was just no way physically that Jesus could have gotten back to Bethany before Lazarus died. In fact, in all probability, Lazarus died just hours after the messengers left Bethany to go find Jesus. So before they even get to Jesus, Lazarus is already gone. And so the question is then raised, why is John giving us this geography lesson and this information about Lazarus being in the tomb for four days. What's the purpose of this? Because remember, paper and ink was expensive and there was no room for wasting with fluff in writing something as large as the Gospel of John. And on top of all that practical reason not to include the fluff, there is nothing written in Scripture that is not there inspired by the Holy Spirit for our good. Every single word, even the parts about boils on the skin in Leviticus, is there inspired by the Spirit for our good. I'm still working on why and finding what that purpose is, but it's there. And when... John tells us that Lazarus has been dead in the tomb for four days. This just eliminates any chance of him not actually being dead. Because one of the claims that those who would uh, challenge the authenticity and veracity of Scripture and the actual godness of Jesus would say, well, when he raised people from the dead, they weren't really dead. They were like in a coma are some other kind of state in which they were still physically alive, but they looked like they were dead, and so the people believed they were dead. 
and it's true from exhuming graves over the different centuries that there were people who were entombed as dead that weren't really dead and then came back to life in the grave. As unpleasant as that is to think about, there is historical evidence to show that it's true. And so by Lazarus having been in the tomb for four days, John's making it clear there is absolutely zero chance that he was just in a coma or that he was in some other kind of state but wasn't completely physically dead. Look, the Jew was dead. He is a dead, dead Jew, as dead as dead can be. Even if he was in a coma when they put him in the grave after four days in that location, you're going to be dead. I mean, I would wish I was dead after the first day if it was me. So he, Lazarus is dead. There's just no other possibility after four days in the grave. But then why the geography lesson? What's the purpose of telling us that Bethany's two miles from Jerusalem? Well, remember, it was just a few weeks ago the Jews were trying to kill Jesus. It had only really it had probably been less than six weeks. And being this close to Jerusalem was a risk for Jesus. It took trust in the Father and belief in his mission to go this close to Jerusalem before he was ready to go to the cross. It was a risk because he, this just being two miles from the walls of Jerusalem would open the door for a confrontation with the authorities and them trying to arrest him before he was ready to be arrested. And while we've seen in different places that when Jesus is threatened this way, but it's not his time, he just walks through the crowd like he's invisible. It nonetheless also opens up risk for the disciples and those that are with him. So this wasn't just a casual event. I mean, apart from the reality that nothing's casual about raising somebody from the dead. But Jesus going to Bethany is not just a casual event. It was, from a human perspective, a risk. And from a human perspective, it required great trust in the Father to go there. Then in verse 19, we see this very interesting piece of what John is trying to get us to see, something that's maybe not obvious at first, that many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning the death of their brother Lazarus. Many of these Jews had come from Jerusalem. Here's the part that's really fascinating to me. Maybe it's just because I'm a nerd. But this is fascinating. Many of these Jews who came to Mary and Martha to console her did not believe in Jesus. We actually, John makes that explicit by the time we get to verse to the end of verse 45. That there were lots of people who came to console Mary and Martha. They didn't believe in Jesus. Then they watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and now they do believe in him. And so what's interesting is that this difference of beliefs did not impair their caring for Mary and Martha. They seemed to be really okay with coming out to Mary and Martha to console them and to care for them, even though they didn't believe in Jesus. 
which is an important lesson for us to grasp today in our cancel culture. We do well to remember this first century example of caring for those we disagree with. Not to fall victim into the same belief that the culture does, that if you don't agree with me about this thing, then I just cast you off as a piece of human trash and hope that the worst things in the world happen to you. No, we are not to do that, brothers and sisters. We are to be different. Now, I concede to you fully that how do you show kindness and love to those you disagree with without affirming them in their beliefs that you disagree with and that the challenges that come and how do you practically do that and do it in a way that is loving but yet not affirming of something you don't believe. And that's a difficult conversation because it's a difficult thing to grasp and understand. Nonetheless, Scripture calls us to do just that. Then, after these sort of what feels like just background information in 8.17 through 19, we start to get to what feels like the meat of the story, which is Mary and Martha, specifically Martha in this part of the passage, interacting with Jesus. Martha heard that Jesus was coming, so she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So John makes it plain that Jesus is just staying on the outside of the village. He doesn't want to go into the village and create a, a stir by people knowing that he's there for all the different reasons. And so word gets to Martha. Someone lets her know that Jesus is out there on the edge. So she gets up and leaves and comes to him, which is in their culture, for her to get up and leave the house like that is a really big deal. In fact, so much so that John even makes a point of saying that Mary stayed behind at first. And it also displays what great respect and appreciation and love that Martha has for Christ. And as she goes to him, Martha is wanting more than just an audience with Jesus. She's eagerly going to him, what appears to be looking for a comforting word, something she can hang on to as she is lamenting this great and sorrowful moment of grief at the death of her brother. And let's be clear, Lazarus' death, if we are correct in understanding what we think we understand about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that they were not Mary and Martha were not married, nor was Lazarus. Lazarus' death was a tremendous blow to Mary and Martha's future as single unmarried women living in that Jewish culture. It would be very difficult for them to provide for themselves in most cases. So this is not just the emotional loss, but in the background of that emotional loss is the very real reality of their socioeconomic difficulties that lie ahead. Similar to what we would think of today for a single mom. But Martha comes to Jesus and laments that he was not there to save Lazarus. Now she knows that he could not have gotten there in time, yet her words seem to communicate that he would have or should have known to come before Lazarus died, before it was too late. 
She almost communicates like you have divine knowledge. You knew this was going to happen and you didn't get up and do something about it. However, in that lament, she goes even further than that. She subtly asks for a miracle. Her request is both bold, brazen, and brash. It's a subtle request, but she's right out, flat out asking him to do something miraculous right here, right now. Yet, Martha gets more than she bargained for with her request. Way more than she bargained for. Because Jesus immediately turns the tables on Martha and turns this into a moment that is a test of faith in him for Martha. Notice something critical in these verses, 23, 24, and 27. Notice that in these verses, Jesus is requiring a confession of faith before he will grant a request for the miraculous. Now, what's really fascinating to me is that this is a common pattern for Jesus. Think back to the Syrophoenician woman in Tyr when he's out there and she's begging him to heal her daughter of the demon and he's ignoring her and the disciples are saying, you know, look, do something. This woman's driving us all nuts. She won't stop. And he goes, well, I'm sent here for the children of Israel. Or she, she finally gets to Jesus and asks him what she wants. You know, heal my daughter of the demon. And he says, hey, look, I'm here for the children of Israel. Not for the rest of the world yet. And she goes, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then he gives her the, the miraculous request she's made to heal her daughter. This stunning, shocking statement of faith and belief in Jesus, far greater than anything any Jewish person has even confessed of Jesus to that point with this woman. And so here again, Jesus is requiring a confession of faith in him before he grants the the miraculous. And Martha's confession there in verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. That's not a complete understanding of who he is. And the way she says it articulates this incomplete understanding of who he is because she's on that side of the resurrection, not this side, like we are. But also notice that as incomplete as her confession is, it's still a courageous one. Because for her to make such a confession this close to the walls of Jerusalem and the threats of the Jewish leaders to anyone who would confess Jesus as the Christ, remember, go back to John chapter 9, verse 22, with a blind guy that was born blind. If anybody confesses Jesus is the Christ, they're going to be thrown out of the synagogue and they're going to be beaten and flogged. They're going to be called bad names and just whatever they can think up. That's what's going to happen to you if you confess Jesus as the Christ. And here she is two miles from that spot where they say they're going to do this. And she boldly and courageously makes her confession of faith in Jesus Christ, even though it's an incomplete one. Look, this is something I want you to grasp. 
This is no small thing for her to say this in that moment, in that location, that close to Jerusalem, that four days after her brother's death, believing that Jesus with divine knowledge would have known and should have been here to heal Lazarus, but didn't do it. All of that's wrapped up. What the Pharisees are going to do to her, they get find out she's confessed he is the Christ. Frustrated and disappointed with him that he didn't act to save Lazarus' life. All of that's wrapped up in her confession in this very moment and instant. It's a boldly courageous one. And I think it's as boldly courageous as the request she is making to him as well. And the reason I want you to grasp this is because too often we remember Martha for being admonished for her being busy. From Luke chapter 10, verses 38 and 42, you probably remember this. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and then a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her them her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is what we most often remember Martha for, is being busy instead of being at the feet of Jesus. But we are wrong to make this the way we remember Martha. Martha should not be remembered for that moment of being busy, but for this one outside the village of Bethany. And here's something. Mary, in all of the Gospels, Martha's sister Mary never shows this kind of faith in Jesus. It's true she pours out expensive ointment and wipes him with, you know, washes his feet with her tears and wipes his feet with her hair. Amazingly, stunningly shocking act of kindness and love. But she never expresses or displays any kind of faith in Jesus like this confession that Martha makes about Jesus. So we should remember Martha for the confession she does make because of its boldness and its courageousness in that moment. Then Jesus' statements to Martha standing outside the village. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus makes a bold and more shocking claim to deity than the previous I am statements. He just doesn't claim to have resurrection power. He claims to be the giver of life and the source of resurrection power from the dead. Everybody, look, Jesus isn't the first person to raise someone from the dead in the Bible. It was done in the Old Testament by Elijah and Elisha. It's going to be done later in the New Testament by Paul and Peter. And Jesus is saying, I'm just not another guy that can raise people from the dead like Elijah and Elisha and like Peter and Paul will do later. He's saying, I am the giver of life and the source of resurrection power. Elijah and Elisha, when they raised someone from the dead, they did that through me. And when Peter and Paul do it in the future, they're doing it through me. I am the giver of life. I am the source of resurrection power 
from the dead. And this echoes the idea of breathing life into man at the creation in Genesis. From Genesis chapter 2, the verses 5, 6, and 7. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Jesus displays this same power of life when he breathes on the disciples after his resurrection and they receive the Holy Spirit. From jumping way ahead to John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the day he rose from the dead, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Okay, that's a whole separate problem by itself. He just walks through locked doors and just says, peace be with you. Come on, nobody's going to be at peace with that in that moment. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. In a way, we're going to see next week, Jesus doesn't physically breathe onto Lazarus, but brothers and sisters, he breathes into Lazarus just like he breathed into each of us at the moment of our salvation, of our turning towards him as our Savior and our Lord, resurrecting our dead hearts so that we believe in him and trust in him and everything that occurs with the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, when we are transformed from the inside out, all of that is his resurrection power at work in the living, not just the dead. So what do we do with all this? Well, first, I would say, just as I mentioned in previous verses, to delay is not to deny. Just because our Father and Savior say not now does not mean they are saying no. Because right here, Mary and Martha send for Jesus wanting him to come save Lazarus now and Jesus' response is not now. But it wasn't no. He was still planning to save Lazarus he was still planning to restore him from his sickness. He just wasn't going to do it that day in that way that they wanted. And we have to grasp and hold on to that because all of us, at some point or another, either you have or you will, be struggling and pleading with Jesus to do something. And his response is, not now. And when he says to us, not now, we have to believe and trust that it's not a no, it's just a not now. The second thing I would say is, if you want a miracle, 
be ready to give a confession of faith. Our Lord may require you to take the next step of faith and trust in him and confess that faith in him before he grants your miracle. Now, I'm not, of course, talking about initial confession of faith in him as Lord and Savior that all of us in this room have gone through and experienced. I'm talking about the next step of faith, the next level of trust in him. Oftentimes, when we're wanting a miracle, it's him drawing us out so that we will take a step of faith that is far greater than anything we've ever done. And if you want a miracle, be ready to go to the next level of trust in him and make that confession of trust in him that's required at the next level. And then lastly, Jesus' resurrection power goes far beyond raising people from the physical grave. He is exercising resurrection power at each place and time hope is realized and life made new. Every time you reach that point of hopelessness and God restores your hope, that is his resurrection power at work. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but in human nature, once you lose hope, you never get it back apart from divine work of God. The hopeless stay hopeless apart from Jesus' resurrection power in their heart and in their mind. And brothers and sisters, when you find your place, I say when, not if, when you find yourself in that moment of hopelessness, when you've given up, remember and cling to his resurrection power to bring hope back to the moment and place of hopelessness. I understand that oftentimes when we have hopelessness, we're not seeing reality as things really are, that there is still reason to hope. But I'm saying to you, once you're there, and I have a wee bit of experience in this area, once you're there, his resurrection power can resurrect your hope. And cling to it with all your being, with all your strength, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Well, at least what's left of your mind during the moment of hopelessness. His resurrection power can do all things because he is the great I am. O Lord, who is sufficient for things such as this? Who, O Lord, can grasp the heights, the breadth, and the depth of your love for us? That you would send your only Son to die on the cross and to shed his perfect, sinless, uncorrupted blood to redeem us and give us resurrection of life. The resurrection of life to believe, the resurrection of life to continue hoping and trusting, and then one day the resurrection of the physical body to enjoy all the glories of heaven and the fullness and the richness 
of all that is promised to us when you return and make all things new. O Lord, give us this hope and give us the courage to make the confession of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.